Okay, thanks a lot, everyone, for your patience and also for coming out tonight. Um, you've had time to do this, but I'll remind you anyway to please set your phones and pagers to a setting that makes me not know that you have them on. That would be really great. Uh, thank you so much. Um, thanks for coming out for this, which is the last event in the Committee on Public Lectures uh, series for the year. My name is Sam Wong, and I'm chair of the committee, and I'm really glad to be ending with a bang as we are tonight. Um, I'm very pleased about how public lectures has turned out this year. Uh, I'm a little sad to see the year end, and we've had some really great sp speakers. I recognize some of you for, for coming out from the other ones. Uh, but I'm also excited about next year, and if you're interested in next year's events, uh, next year we have Errol Morris, Ruth Reichel, David Kessler, Robert Schiller, and others coming, and I think it's going to be just as good as this year. Um, and you can read, read more about these events eventually as we get a full schedule. We will be posting these events and others at lectures.princeton.edu. And of course, you can also see some events on webcast and also on local cablecast. Now, tonight's lecture is a Stafford Lytle lecture. This is a fund funded and founded in 1899 with a gift of $10,000 by Henry Stafford Lytle of the class of 1844. Uh, Lytle was a lawyer, active in New Jersey politics, and was the first president of the New York and Long Branch Railroad Company. Uh, Dean Andrew West said that Princeton took the place of the wife, home, and children he never had. Now, when he funded this lecture series, he initially specified that Grover Cleveland be invited to deliver this lecture every year. Um, <laughs> now, after Mr. Cleveland's death, then it was generalized a little bit to include uh, general social sciences. And to give you an idea of who's spoken in this series uh, in that 100 years, it's included uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Albert Einstein, Arnold Schoenberg, Thurgood Marshall. Uh, I'll skip forward a few decades. And in recent years, we've had Seymour Hirsch, Andrew Sullivan, James Fallows, Daniel Liebeskind, and George Packer. Okay, so we've had some very, very good speakers in this series. And I'm very pleased tonight to have two very remarkable guests, very interesting guests who are more similar in certain ways that we were not expecting when we initially invited them, Matt Taibbi and Jillian Tett. And this session tonight will be moderated by our own Professor Harrison Hong. And I would like to tell you a little bit about them all. Matt Taibbi is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. He graduated from Bard College in 1991 and finished his studies at Leningrad Polytechnical University in Russia. Uh, he has had a career that is varied and is the stuff of legend. He worked as a freelance reporter and professional baseball player in the Soviet Union and Uzbekistan, <laughs> and, and later played professional basketball in Mongolia. Um, and in between, he worked uh, for a private detective agency in Boston. Um, he resettled eventually in Moscow, and he did, again, a variety of things all in one place. He worked for several newspapers. He committed journalism in English and in Russian. He worked for a, a newspaper that he co-founded, The Exile, and he reported on corruption. It was the only publication to correctly predict the 1998 Russian financial crisis. He also wrote in Russian, and the, these two papers uh, together wiretapped the telephone of Kremlin Chief of Staff Alexander Woloshin. Um, he Worked, he worked in a variety of jobs to show people the reality of Russian life. Uh, he worked as a bricklayer, a migrant farm laborer, an elephant cage keeper, <laughs> and as a professional clown. Uh, he returned to the U.S. for good in 2002. Um, he's worked for uh, The Beast, which he founded in Buffalo, the New York Press, and now he's a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. He's won the National Magazine Award for columns and commentary, and he's also been uh, anthologized in the best political writing of 2003, for a column on George W. Bush's pre-war press conference entitled Cleaning the Pool. He's been named 
one of the 35 most influential New Yorkers under 35 by the New York Observer, and he's uh, made anthropological style observations um, in his book, The Great Derangement, in which he covered the American psyche. He also has essay collections, Spanking the Donkey, and Smells Like Dead Elephants. Our other panelist tonight is Dr. Jillian Tett of the Financial Times, who uh, is US managing editor. Uh, she leads the editorial development of the paper's US edition and of US News on FT.com. She previously was assistant editor responsible for the FT's markets coverage. She's also served as capital markets editor, deputy editor of the Lex column, Tokyo bureau chief, Tokyo correspondent, London-based economics reporter, and a reporter in Russia and Brussels. She was named Journalist of the Year in 2009 and Business Journalist of the Year in 2008 by the British Press Awards and Senior Financial Journalist of the Year 2007 by the Wincott Awards. She's the author of a bestseller entitled Fool's Gold, How Unrestrained Greed Corrupted a Dream, Shattered Global Markets, and Unleashed a Catastrophe, which gives you a sense of her stance. Um, <laughs> and also Saving the Sun, A Wall Street Gamble to Rescue Japan from Its Trillion Dollar Meltdown. Now I should say that the commonalities between these two is that they are both experts on Central Asian politics and corruption. Before joining the Financial Times in 1993, Tet was awarded a PhD in social anthropology from Cambridge University based on field work in the Soviet, so former Soviet Union. During her thesis, she worked on tribal marriage customs in Tajikistan. And she has written that when it comes to understanding the tribal nature of banking culture, quote, my years in Tajikistan are suddenly starting to look a whole lot more useful. <laughs> now, Tonight, their conversation will be moderated by Harrison Hong, who is the John Scully Class of 1966 Professor of Economics and Finance here at Princeton University. Professor Hong teaches courses in finance in undergraduate, master's, and PhD programs, and his research covers behavioral finance and stock market efficiency, asset pricing and trading um, under market information, uh, imperfections, and uh, social interaction in markets. In 2009, he was awarded the American Finance Association's Fisher Black Prize given to the person under 40 who has contributed the most to the theory and practice of finance. Now tonight our format is gonna be that uh, Matt will go first and get, Jillian will go first. Who's going first? Jillian Tett will go first with brief remarks, followed by Matt Taibbi, and, uh, and then Professor Hong will moderate a question and answer. So uh, why don't everyone come up and let's welcome you. Thank you so much. indeed for that very kind introduction and I should congratulate the organisers of this conference for being not only very wise but also very lucky because when this idea of having this lecture first cropped up and we talked about trying to get Matt Taibbi and I onto a stage together to talk about things like Goldman Sachs, financial reform, <laughs> wither the economy, there was actually some concern about whether all of that would still be relevant today. <laughs> And here we are, having just had what, to my mind, was an absolutely fascinating day yesterday. 
I imagine many of you are watching it too. Um, and it was fascinating watching the um, inquiry, the, commission, um, the committee of yesterday with Goldman Sachs, not only because it's one of the first times that I've actually seen some of the Goldman Sachs bankers being subjected to intensive questioning in a public format, but also because it's one of the first times I've ever seen um, a public discussion that lasted for almost 10 hours about the very esoteric topic of synthetic CDOs. Um, it's a topic of great interest to me because when I first hit on the idea about three years ago of trying to write a book about the development of the CDO world, the development of complex credit, um, you know, my publishers in America were saying to me, well, hang on a sec, do you really think anyone's ever going to be interested? <laughs> in fact, at one stage, they actually asked me if I could write my book about the development of complex credit without using the word CDO, because they worried that all those acronyms would be far too off-putting. And yet here we are at a time where we just had this incredibly long debate about this, and people have been fascinated by it. Now, they're fascinated partly because of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs does make a very easy target. Um, as many of you will know, Matt Taibbi described Goldman Sachs as being infamously like a giant vampire squid in an article, which has very much taken on the extraordinary cultural resonance and captured a mood of this time. And Matt's very much to be saluted for having been brave enough to tackle a topic that certainly until that point, much of the media had not really delved into very deeply. But if I was to choose my own metaphor for Goldman Sachs, um, the metaphor I would use is actually one of an amoeba, not a vampire squid. Because much of what Goldman Sachs has done in recent years, much of their brilliance on Wall Street in terms of making money, has really been about the way that they've sat there at the centre of the financial system, sucked in information all around them, like an amoeba, and then used that in an extraordinarily effective way to make money. And the key thing you need to realise is that although Goldman Sachs has done that very effectively and made very big profits, such big profits that when I was researching my book, the words Goldman Envy used to come up over and over again, because that was very much what drove many other banks, they actually just exemplify a pattern which has been endemic to Wall Street in recent years, and which goes a long way to explaining why there's now so much anger amongst the ordinary public now about the way that finance has developed. And the key thing you need to understand about this pattern, and the key thing why this amoeba complex, this amoeba system matters so much, is that when Goldman Sachs has been sucking up this information, when other Wall Street banks have been sucking up their information and then using it to trade it, that's put them in a very powerful position because there's been a fundamental paradox at the heart of 21st century finance. Although 21st century finance has been built on the idea that America has a free market financial system, Although that's a creed which has driven so much of the political culture, so much of the debate, and although that's the idea that's driven a lot of the innovation in finance, a lot of it's been driven by this idea that if you had these incredibly complex products and this way to trade credit and trade risk, you'd create the perfect markets. In fact, market completion was the buzzword amongst many of the bankers I used to talk to in the CDO world. In reality, the very act of creating these unbelievably complex products has essentially created a market where many of the products were not actually traded at all. We did not actually have free markets in much of Wall Street in recent years because these products were so complex, so opaque, so murky, that you didn't have free information flow. You didn't actually have free trading. So much so that many of the banks 
couldn't even work out the value of these products according to market prices, they had to use models. It was a fundamental contradiction at the very heart of the system. That essentially enabled banks like Goldman Sachs to sit there, sucking up this information that other people didn't have, sucking up all kinds of data, and not merely having an advantage by seeing what other people couldn't see, be in relation to the Abaca CTO or anything else, but also, in effect, having the ability to often set the price, to determine the price, because other people couldn't see what was going on. Now, much of the debate right now about financial reform is how do you move beyond that? How do you get to a situation where you don't just have one or two powerful amoeba sucking up information and creating, if you like, rigged markets, controlled markets, anything other than free markets? How do you actually create a more level playing field? And there's a long debate we can have tonight about you know, transparency, about what you do with derivatives, et cetera, et cetera. But the heart of it going forward is really how do you want a proper market financial system, a market-based financial system, if that's what you want? How do you create real markets in what's supposed to be a free market world? But that's one set of questions. The other set of questions, which is really going to lead on to what Matt's going to talk about now, is given that there was this fundamental paradox at the very heart of the system, given that you had banks and Wall Street that was operating under the rhetoric of free markets in a world that was anything other than proper free markets, why did no one spot it for so long? Why was it that bankers, that central bankers, were allowed to keep talking about innovation being good for us all? Why was it that everyone was thinking we had this market completion going on, when in fact we had anything but? And that then leads you into really big questions about cognitive capture, about power structures, about the way that dominant groups in society essentially set the social debate. And it also raises questions about the way the media and the wider public talks about finance. And so, on that note, I'm going to pass over to Matt, who's now going to discuss the role of the media. Well, thank you. Uh, is this on? Can everybody hear me? Uh, well, first of all, I want to thank uh, Princeton University uh, and Jillian and everybody for inviting me here today. It's a tremendous honor. I think of someone who tried to tell me 10 years ago that I would eventually be sharing a stage uh, with somebody like Jillian uh, a, speaking about high finance at Princeton University. Uh, I probably would have gone straight back into rehab. Uh, <laughs> not believed it. Um, but I'm very grateful to be here to talk about this. Uh, obviously, this is a fascinating subject. And on the subject of how everybody missed this story, uh, I think this is one place where I have a peculiar expertise. Um, I've been on the front lines of the media missing huge stories uh, for my whole life. And uh, I, I really just want to tell a couple of stories about, um, about a couple of things that, that we missed. In my, in my own personal career, I've actually gone through um, a very similar uh, uh, sort of epiphany about uh, how, what I was missing twice now, once with this financial story and once with the story that I was, uh, I was covering as a young reporter in Russia. So I want to back up and just tell quickly a story about that. Um, when I first started writing, uh, I, was a, I had just finished studying uh, in Russia. I was deciding to become a freelance reporter. And I was trying to sell news stories to the wire services uh, while living in St. Petersburg. And uh, I knew, I obviously spoke Russian. I knew a lot about Russia already, but I didn't know exactly how to sell stories yet. I didn't know what the media was interested in. 
So I went around to the wire services in Moscow, I introduced myself, and I started calling them from time to time with ideas that I had. I would say, um, you guys want a story about how the murder rate has gone up 150% in St. Petersburg this year. And they'd say, uh, no, it's you know, a little bit negative. Uh, <laughs> I call up and say, you know, well, there's you know, the, uh, this beer bar in my, on, on the first floor of my building. It's now being replaced by heroin dealers. You know, don't you think that's interesting that this sort of, you know, the opening up of Russia to the rest of the world has resulted in this? Nah, that's kind of not what we're looking for. You know, again, it's kind of too negative. So finally, I called them up. I saw something in the newspaper that uh, the gorillas in the uh, St. Petersburg Zoo were going to be getting bananas for the first time, uh, thanks to the wonders of free market capitalism. Uh, so I called them up and I said, hey, what about this thing, you know, gorillas getting bananas for the first time? They're like, yes, I want that. <laughs> so, you know, communist gorilla gets first banana. That was really, that was one of the first stories that I actually wrote. Um, and then after that, uh, a few years later, fast forward, I'm working for the Moscow Times. My first job there was actually as a sports editor. So, you know, again, you don't really need to use your brain to do sports. So for about a year and a half, I didn't do any, any real hard work at all. And then I got switched to the regular reporting desk. And they started having me cover cultural slash political stories. And one of the first things they sent me to cover was the opening of Kentucky Fried Chicken uh, in Moscow. And I remember going there, and, um, and I'm sitting there at the KFC, and I'm, clear, I'm one of about 50 American reporters that are sitting there covering this event. It's like the most important thing that's ever happened. <laughs> and uh, I remember seeing a reporter from one of the big newspapers. I can't remember what it was, but he didn't speak Russian. He had a translator with him. And he's sitting there talking to a typical new Russian. This guy has got like a fake satin shirt. You can see that his back hair is coming out of the shirt. He's got like a gold chain around his neck. And uh, the reporter says to him, uh, says to this translator, ask him how he likes the extra crispy. Uh, and that, that was the question. And then suddenly dawned on me, this is the same story. This is uh, communist gorilla gets, gets first banana. <laughs> uh, and from there on in, it, it, I, it, I realized that basically every story that American reporters did during that time period from about 1991 to 2000 until Putin got elected was in one form or another a version of this communist guerrilla gets first banana story. Uh, they, made, they created this entire narrative where uh, there, were, uh, there was a group of good guys. They were the people who were bringing the bananas, the free market capitalists, the Western educated Russians, and the Western advisors who came to Russia to implement privatization and free market capitalism and, and all that good stuff. And everybody else was a quote unquote communist or a hardliner, uh, somebody who was against it. And this was my first introduction to uh, one of the other realities of, of journalism, which is that we basically cover politics as a sports story. Uh, there's always two teams, and in, this, in Russia's case, it was you know, the good guys, the white hats, which were the reformers, and the black hats, which were the, uh, the hardliners, the communists, et cetera. And um, again, every story that we did was a, was a, was a version of that. And uh, I didn't really even notice it for a long time, how, how absurd it was. And then one day, I was sitting and listening to a colleague of mine who was being asked to cover a story called Loans for Shares. Does anybody here know what this, what this is? This was the thing that happened in the mid-90s where they wanted to privatize all the major uh, Soviet um, industries. And so what they did is they created the system where the government would effectively lend state money to a handful of private individuals so that they could buy controlling stakes in what used to be gigantic Soviet companies. 
So what it really amounted to is friends of these quote unquote reformers were handed billion dollar companies uh, without having to put really anything up front. And this sort of instantly created an oligarchy. Uh, it was a small handful of people, um, but it was saluted in the Western press as privatization. This was a good thing. This was uh, free market uh, capitalism and democracy in action. And I remember listening to this colleague of mine being explained this, uh, the scheme on the phone by some Western analyst. And I remember him interrupting and saying, oh, I get it. It's just like stealing, except we're not calling it that, right? <laughs> and uh, so from, you know, from there on in, I started to realize that there was an enormous discrepancy between uh, the, the storyline that we were sending home, which is that all these guys were, were good guys, uh, and the reality, which was that it was a very complicated oligarchical system. You know, incidentally, one of the, one of the things, the resultant effects of loans for shares was that they, this was happening right around the time that Boris Yeltsin was up for his first re-election. He was being threatened uh, with a loss because the communists were polling very, very well at the time. And so when they gave these industries, these gigantic share uh, companies to this small handful of insiders, one of the first things that they did is they all coughed money back to the Yeltsin re-election campaign. Uh, and they heavily, they saturated the airwaves with commercials and Yeltsin narrowly won re-election. And that was how democracy uh, continued in Russia uh, through the Yeltsin years. So again, this sort of circular relationship you know, between private interests and, and public interests, this sort of oligarchical structure, um, that was the reality. But the, the, the storyline that we were selling uh, to people at home was something completely different. And I then spent the next six or seven years with my own newspaper, once I realized what was going on, kind of covering that distance between that, that same storyline and, and the reality that we were seeing on the ground. Uh, so fast forward uh, to when I come back to the United States. And after having this kind of thrilling journalistic experience of covering you know, the labyrinthine corruption of Russia, and you know, Russia, nobody does corruption better than the Russians, uh, well, maybe until now. Um, but I start working for Rolling Stone, and I'm covering um, you know, presidential politics for Rolling Stone. And I, after, by the second campaign, after following you know, these, these candidates around, and it's all this stupid stuff of you know, Reverend Wright this, or you know, was Barack Obama you know, holding his hand over his heart during the Pledge of Allegiance, and the right yelling at the left, the left yelling at the right? I kept thinking to myself, this can't really be this stupid, can it? I mean, there has to be some other story here that I'm not seeing. And I didn't really figure out, um, get a, an inkling of what it was until uh, one day in the summer of 2008, uh, a whole bunch of us reporters were um, following McCain around. And McCain was, everybody remember that whole drill, baby drill speech that he was into? Uh, I mean, gas prices were rising. And the Republican Party line at the time was that the reason gas prices were rising is because we weren't allowing people to drill in the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, so he was giving this speech uh, about how we need to drill right away. And, and, the, de and you know, the Democrats were standing in the way of you know, uh, getting gas prices in order. And all the reporters were filing back into the plane uh, after the event. And we're all, you know, rep reporters like to you know, joke about candidates and call them names all the time, even if they don't know what they're talking about. And we're all laughing about McCain, everyone's saying, God, what a, what a load of crap, you know, I mean, of course it's not, you know, it has nothing to do with drilling. If we all get in the plane and finally after a few minutes I kind of raised my hand and said, hey, does anybody actually know why gas prices are going up? 
and it was like a cartoon where all the crickets were, you could hear in the background, no, nobody knew the answer, you know? And uh, it occurred to me at that moment that we were all frauds. Uh, none of us knew why gas prices were rising. And um, I, I went home after that, and I started making phone calls to people asking why gas prices were going up. Uh, one of the first things I found out was that supply was actually, uh, was actually up and demand was down, so that it wasn't a supply and demand issue. So what was going on here? Um, then I started finding out about uh, the way the commodities market was structured and the fact that you know, there was a, a Roosevelt-era law that was supposed to regulate the amount of speculative activity in the market. Uh, there were quote-unquote physical hedgers, which were people who were really trading the commodities, and then there was supposed to be a small uh, regulated percentage of speculators in the market. Well, I found out that starting back in 1991, uh, when a, a subsidiary of Goldman Sachs called Jay Aaron uh, applied to the government for an exception uh, or exemption to those rules, uh, the amount of speculators slowly started to rise uh, because a number of people who were purely speculators were, got exemptions and were allowed to act as quote-unquote physical hedgers. They were uh, you know, supposedly trading a real product, but they were actually speculating. And over a period of time, what ended up happening was the amount of speculative activity on the commodities market dominated the, uh, the amount of real activity on the market, and what we got was a speculative bubble in the summer of 2008. And the amazing thing was, Nobody was talking about it. Here we are, it's a major campaign issue, gas prices. And while I'm finding out about this, I'm, I'm turning on one television set, and there's Barack Obama saying the solution is we all have to drive hybrid cars. And the other, on the other set, it's, it's John McCain uh, saying that we need to start drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's this, it was this, clearly this absurd storyline, uh, but that's the way we do the media in this country. We get into this group think, we cover politics is a sports story, and anything that's really more complicated than that doesn't fit into the way we cover the news in this country. And so that's, that's why um, this financial story uh, has, I think, come to uh, everybody as, as a great shock, because it doesn't fit into our conventional view of uh, you know, the, the, the narrative that we're used to with news in this country. And I think this is a great opportunity. Um, for everybody to start looking at the country and uh, politics in this country in some way that isn't left versus right, Democrats versus Republicans, blue versus red, because uh, this is a story, again, that's just like the Russia story. It's a very complicated story about oligarchy and about interrelated interests uh, and how power actually operates. And America's a, a gigantic, vast empire. It shouldn't be a simple story. It should be a complicated story, and it is. And I think we're, we're at a moment where America, really for the first time in a long time, is starting to realize that. And we're, we're looking at these issues for the first time. And I think that's, that's what's exciting about this. So. Great. All right, well, um, you can tell that I'm ecstatic to be here, to get to sit between these two, uh, to really have, uh, we had dinner together earlier. And um, I'm supposed, I think my job was to substitute, to pinch hit for Sam, uh, <laughs> because he chickened out at the last minute. He was supposed to be sitting here. <laughs> Uh, and, and to sort of moderate and guide, guide, guide the conversation. So, um, but before I start, I wanted to do a, maybe a kind of a one-minute confessional, um, just to sort of let you know where I'm coming from with the questions. Uh, the, the first thing was, in 1991, I almost became a little mini vampire squid. Uh, <laughs> when I graduated from college, I had one job offer, which was from Goldman Sachs, actually. Uh, I didn't really know any finance at the time, because I was a, a math and econ major. I couldn't tell a call from a putt, you know. Um, but 
you know, they offered me the job. And, and I remember um, uh, the, the attraction at the time, the pay was not nearly the same as what it was now. And just to sort of let you know, I think at that time, the compensation, they were still a private partnership. They weren't a publicly traded company. There were no options. Uh, and I think the, their pitch to me was that if I worked for 18 hours a day, I would get an $11 cab ride home and a $16 free dinner on the firm that night. <laughs> and so then I weighed the options. It's like, well, you know, $20,000 grad school budget, that seems pretty good, you know, compared to that. But clearly things have changed. And I think the first thing I would probably say is that, um, you know, in 2001, if the same job offer had come again, right, uh, it might have been sort of a very different story. And then sort of, then I went to grad school. Second confessional is uh, my first job was uh, teaching derivatives, actually, kind of pricing of <laughs> at Stanford Business School. Uh, that was my first um, job. And, and again, actually, I still didn't know anything about derivatives, actually, even after four years <laughs> in grad school, I remember. And, uh, but, you know, whatever. They, they recruit you, and you're supposed to learn some stuff and, 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 and teach. And, and I think I was 26 at the time, and, you know, I grabbed some books, and, you know, you know math, you can do some stuff, and I taught everybody everything. But I didn't really think that anybody really completely believed this stuff, you know. Uh, that's, that's, I think, the second. And it was funny because Jillian tonight gave this amazing anecdote where she very presciently in 2004 was already investigating the CDO market, which is a collateralized uh, default obligations, uh, which is these sort of complicated packages of derivatives, et cetera. And she was mentioning that... Uh, um, the tribe, the so -called, her, her, her verbiage of the tribe, that they use this phrase market completion. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's what I taught them. You know, that's what I used to tell my students, is like we're completing the markets by creating more of these financial instruments, which was a little scary, and I think it was very, very, uh, it was very insightful. And I think that the, the, the final comment, the final confession, as I'll say, is that you know, in the same period of this crisis, um, I did manage uh, for a while uh, a very unsuccessful uh, uh, fixed income fund actually, uh, and, uh, and at the time we were, and I remember that the firm was trying to get us to do the CDS stuff, and we said, oh, geez, you know, nobody's gonna believe this. This is so complicated, you know? Nobody could possibly, uh, and this is in 2004 before kind of everything really just starts to take off in this market, and so we, we said we would do some plain vanilla fun, and when the market starts tanking and the crisis comes in 2007, we thought, oh, you know, we're so smart. You know, we stayed away from all these complicated products, except for one problem. We ended up holding a lot of AAA bonds, which are all these mortgage companies, which basically went bankrupt. So, and hence, that, that's kind of the, the, the uh, sort of my vantage point is, it's a bit of like, I think, sort of as, I wouldn't say insider, but sort of uh, knowing kind of the mechanisms. And so, kind of the, the flavor of the conversation is to kind of draw out a little bit the narrative that uh, uh, Jillian and, 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 and Matt has kind of uh, brought up. So, maybe, so I'll, I'll start with some questions there. Um, so I think the, Jillian makes this sort of very insightful and deep, I think, point about the idea that there was really no free markets, right? That um, at some level, uh, there was all this kind of complicated stuff, but ultimately there were no prices, okay? Because these, these, these securities were so complicated that nobody was really kind of trading them. And so as a result, you know, uh, people were making kind of fantastical numbers, et cetera. So kind of on that note, do you view, you know, like if you had to sort of do kind of the regulation to deal with this market, assuming that this market kind of comes back, so do you know, what, what's sort of your take as, do you think this market is just completely like useless? Uh, or is there some social value to having uh, uh, these sorts of instruments out there? 
and if so, kind of how would you kind of think about the regulation of these instruments as a way to kind of, um, you know, make them more viable and less dangerous? Um, well, one thing I would do is to go back to what happened after 1929, which is that after 1929, there was essentially a sort of outcry about the way the equity market was run. And there was a recognition that the equity market had been a rigged game. And in the aftermath of that, there was a drive to create exchanges, to create prospectuses, to create standards of transparency, and in a sense to create a level playing field, um, to create a real market if you think that actually a market needs information flow to function, need, need to have some reasonably equal access to information in order to have proper competition to set prices. Now, I wouldn't pretend that necessarily you can transpose all of those lessons onto the credit markets because credit markets in some ways are more complex. You don't, whereas you tend to have one share per company, companies can have many, many bonds. It's not necessarily that simple to transpose the whole thing. But the basic principle is that you've had this tremendous area of activity spring up very rapidly, which was outside, out of the sight of most of the media, out of the sight of most politicians, um, out of the supervision of non-bankers, and where basically there simply wasn't enough information flow there wasn't even a basic prospectus for most of this stuff. I mean, you know, you start looking at something like the abacus trade, which has generated so much discussion in relation to Goldman Sachs in recent days. Um, one of the problems, not just with abacus, but with many of those CDOs, was that somewhere in the fine print of the document, somewhere, there is buried a paragraph saying, you know, on what point you actually reference the prices of this whole deal. But it's buried so deeply that only a couple of people actually know where to find it. The idea of actually having a simple, easy-to-read description of what's actually in these products and how they should be priced, how should they, they should be valued, simply wasn't there. So, in a nutshell, trying to create more standardization, trying to put them on public exchanges, would be one way to actually start building a genuine free market. And frankly, it's a mystery to me as to why more American politicians, who are supposed to be believers in the free market system, aren't standing up and shouting this from the roof, rooftops right now. Because they're all taking money from those companies. I don't think that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the problems with this bill. Is, as I understand it, I don't know if you, uh, the derivatives portion of this bill purports to address that very question. But from my understanding is that, that it's riddled with loopholes and that it, it, while there will be regulated exchanges for standardized derivatives, uh, there will still be the opportunity for, uh, you know, individualized derivatives or designer or whatever um, to be basically traded in the dark the way they are now. And, and I th if, if they manage to pass this bill and they call it derivatives reform and they don't address that, it seems to me that they'll be leaving a, uh, a gaping hole in, 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 the, in but, the reform I mean, one effort. One of the problems is that, you know, any bill that's 1,300 pages long is not going to be read by anyone normal. I mean, you know, the only people who are going to read that bill are going to be the bankers and the lawyers. Um, and guess what? The bankers are the only ones who actually have the resources to pay an army of lawyers to read each of those 1,300 pages. So if you have a rules-based regulatory system where basically it's all about meeting the letter of the law and you don't try and define what the spirit of the law is, you don't have any kind of fundamental principles, then you will always have bankers going to the edge and arbitraging those letters of the law all that 1,300 pages, which no one else actually understands until it's far too late. You know, I think one of the best things they could do right now is actually slap on the front page of those 1,300 pages a one-page, easy-to-read guide to what are the fundamental principles 
that are driving forward our financial system. And top of that list for my money would be the principle we actually need to create the proper markets. But do you think, so in, in sort of on this issue of the derivatives, I don't know if you noted in the, in the press that actually the person who's stopping to some extent the derivatives portion to be append, appended to the, uh, to the financial reform bill is actually Buffett, right? It's, it's actually Warren Buffett, presumably uh, of Berkshire Hathaway, which is kind of like, I think, sort of supposedly the bastion of conservatism. So he's the, he's the, he's the kind of the guy that's lobbying really very hard to, to not have... Uh, um, wheels spinning within wheels, power structures within power structures, you know, and affiliations. One of the great advantages about being an anthropologist, and I think bizarrely, you know, not only is Princeton to be congratulated for staging this debate today, the day after the Goldman Sachs hearings, it's also being congratulated for achieving this extraordinary thing, which is to get on the stage two people who are not only fascinated by CDOs, but also have a background in Central Asia. I mean, you know, I think we're probably the only two people in the world who care about Uzbekistan and CDOs and Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a very interesting club, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is a good dinner. We are the ultra geeks. There's actually a very important point there, which I think Matt's just explained very, very well, which is that if you have grown up, as Matt has done, in the early parts of your career, trying to deconstruct all the contradictions and tensions and hypocrisy of some of the power structures and ideologies and rhetoric that marked the early years of the post-Soviet rule, then actually using that same set of skills to how America's run today, how the financial world today, is actually not that big a leap. In my case, I grew up analyzing Tajik wedding rituals and the way that a rather remote Tajik community had created these rather complex structures and wrapped up its life in its own ideological framework which is also marked by contradictions and forms of hypocrisy and tensions and things. And looking at those kind of tensions which occur in almost any society is a very useful prism for looking at what's happening right now in, um, in yeah. Congress. I mean, I, I actually was very influenced when I was doing my um, academic work by a, a French thinker called Pierre Bourdieu, who used to argue that the way that elite in any society stays in power is not merely by controlling the means of production, but by shaping the cognitive map. And what really matters in shaping that cognitive map is not so much what's discussed in public, but what, what is not discussed. It's social silences that are key. And social silences have been central to understanding how this whole nexus of finance and power has developed in recent years. I think that's one of the really important things about uh, what Jillian is saying is, is um, we've, we've managed to have this sort of conspiracy of silence in this country about the relationship between um, these you know, Wall Street and the power centers in, in, in Washington because we cover those two things as separate stories. We cover politics in this country and then we have this, you know, the economic reporting which for some reason we keep completely separate. You know, the political reporters in this country, uh, and I know because I was one of them, when we cover the economy, what we basically do is look to see if the stock market is up or down. That's, how, that's our, our way of figuring out whether what's going on in the economy. Is it doing well? Is it doing poorly? We never ever look at economics as a political power story and we never look at politics as an economic story. Uh, and so the, the, the public is ne has been trained to just basically think that the markets are operating in a pure free market atmosphere and that what's going on in Washington is completely separate from that. And it, that's a very, very difficult uh, kind of mindset to break with the, the general public. And I think we're only just now starting to get to the point where they're, they're addressing that question. But, but, but like 
but what do you think is the solution? Because it sounds like kind of from both the narratives that the problem is that we didn't really have free markets. It was sort of free, but it was not really free, right? So I mean, you know, kind of one response is that you say, well, you know, you've got to regulate up because, you know, I mean, let's not pretend, you know, let's at least kind of get some cops there so that, uh, uh, you know, guys don't start kind of driving their cars off the bridge all like in some uh, race for the chicken, you know, sort of like a chicken race, right. right? But the other option is you would say, well, look, you know, maybe we should just kind of really uh, um, let these guys know that, look, you know, there's no more insurance, there's no more any other stuff. I mean, is it clear kind of which way you go? No, I mean, I, 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 I wouldn't presume to know the answers to that question, but I think it, it, it clear, it's clearly we have to go one way or the other. I mean, I think that the problem right now is that what we're calling capitalism is really, you know, uh, you know, banks that are competing in terms of influence and not in terms of quality of their products. But they're not really competing, is your point. Right, yeah, they're not really competing. So either have, you know, create a situation where they're completely cut off from government influence and, gov and, and government aid, uh, or have a situation where you just, you know, regulate, try, try to regulate the markets as much as possible, and just, you know, uh, admit that we are where we are and we have to try to, you know, use whatever tools we can to, to make this a fair game. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but definitely we need to you know, go, I think, one way or the other. Um, I'm personally in favor of, again, saying, trying to be clear about it and saying either we're going to move to a world of utility finance, which is tightly controlled by the government, where no one expects to make ROEs of 25% from banks. I mean, no one would expect to make an ROE of 25% from a water company, because there's no way, you, you know, if the economy is growing at 2 or 3% a year, you can make that much money from water unless you're doing something rather weird with your water, you know. There's no way that you could have electricity companies that are suddenly generating these incredible ROEs unless somehow you're paying your electricity managers um, per unit of electricity they pump out, no matter what the demand is. So either you start treating finance as a utility, you know, or you go to a much more proper free market system. And for my money, one of the key changes there would be to say, actually, let's make creditors be really on the hook if a, if a bank goes, goes down. At the moment, the only people who really, really are guaranteed to lose their money if the bank goes down are the equity holders. And shareholders basically are absolutely lousy at monitoring what banks are doing because they have an incentive to look for revenues, to try and bet the bank to kind of hope that revenues grow. The people who have an incentive to try and be cautious and make sure a bank is run in a stable way and won't default are the creditors. But creditors will only start exercising real creditor power if they think that they are actually going to lose money if a bank goes down. And that's not been the case for the last couple of years. But do you think that you can go to a model where you have utility banks? But then what do you deal with about all the hedge funds and, and sort of all these other things? Because presumably, uh, nobody's really going to want to be a utility banker. I don't think most of my students you know, are going to want to sign up for uh, the utility banking job. So do we sort of have then sort of additional regulation to deal with the hedge funds? Or is this just sort of that the hedge funds now, we just kind of let them do whatever they want? Because for sure, sort of in my view, one of the big things that have pushed the banks to kind of where they are is because they saw these hedge fund managers making $2 billion a year, you know, and here they are sitting inside of a bank and they see kind of guys with, you know, a five-team shop suddenly like making $2 billion a year, then they're going to start kind of doing the imitation of, of the hedge fund inside the bank. Well, I would agree that's a problem. In fact, I, I've long thought that one of the most pernicious things about um, removing Sarbanes-Oxley was not so much about the actual logistics of combining commercial banking with securities operations, but it was the fact that you actually put everyone in the same sandbox for the first time, and they were all competing with each other, 
And that happened at the same time that actually a lot of geographical boundaries were being ripped down. And suddenly you had everybody in the world thinking that they should be like Goldman Sachs. The thing about Goldman Envy was absolutely pernicious because everyone looked at Goldman Sachs and said, well, they're making 40% ROEs, why aren't we? And the idea of actually just being happy, being a boring utility bank, went out the window. Um, I think going forward, there needs to be more separation between a utility side of banking and the you know, more speculative activity. And the speculative activity should be fairly tightly constrained and probably run as partnerships. And I think a related issue is the whole issue of compensation in general, which I think you know, one of the things that, that happened on Wall Street that really changed the culture was you know, when companies like Solomon Brothers went public, uh, you, know, you started to see this situation where people weren't betting with their own money anymore, uh, and you had people who were motivated entirely uh, in, in terms of what kind of bonuses they personally were going to make this year, and they weren't thinking about what was good for the company 5, 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and so there was this you know, you know, epidemic of completely self-destructive behavior, but from a, purely from an individual standpoint, uh, a lot of the behavior was rational. A great example is you know, AIG and this small unit there, AIG FP. These guys were selling you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of credit default swap uh, you know, insurance uh, and they didn't have the money to back it up, and they were making massive bonuses that was, uh, you know, throughout this entire time period. The, the guy who was in charge of it, uh, Joe Cassano, I think he, he made something like $290 million over a period of five or six years selling this stuff. And even he still has that money. Even after AIG, AIG went under, uh, there were no consequences. So it, it, it's actually a rational decision for a lot of these people to, to, to do this incredibly irresponsible behavior uh, because they're not going to end up paying the bill in the end. And I think that if they, they have to find some way of addressing the compensation issue or else this kind of stuff is just going to continue. But, but is there a sense that, let me try to run this kind of other narrative just to give kind of the, the, the status quo a bit of a chance, which is, you know, do you kind of put any weight on the idea that maybe we just kind of had some bad luck? That, um, you know, kind of one of the things that's going around, at least sort of what the, the, the guys would say would be something like, it was like the perfect storm of a lot of stuff happening that triggered, you know, for the first time, kind of a national decline in, in, in housing prices. And that's really never kind of happened in the whole history of the United States. So, you know. But, I mean, the housing price thing I used to find amazing because Anyone who is British, and I don't know, is there anyone else who's British in this audience? Who, yeah, okay. Well, you'll know what I mean. You know, I graduated from college in the UK, or um, I rather started finishing my PhD looking for houses in 89, and all the smart guys in my year, all the ones who wanted to be bankers and management consultants and weren't sort of hippie anthropologists, went out and bought houses straight away, and within two years, there was a brutal housing market crash in the UK that scarred anyone who graduated around the same time as me. So anyone who came from the UK in that period knew that house prices go, went down. And then I went to Japan a few years later and spent much of the late 1990s writing about the impact of a brutal housing market crash in Japan. So it was kind of baked into my psyche that house prices go down very brutally sometimes. I then picked up in America in the early part of the last decade and get deeply embedded in this whole CDO world. And I was based in London, but I used to come to America the whole time. And time after time, I used to hear people talking about the fact that you couldn't have a national house price decline. I mean, so much so that, as many of you will know, that in many of the models, there wasn't even a way to express the idea of a national house price decline. 
People used to talk about negative house price inflation. If you think about it. But it wasn't even there as an input. And I sit there and think, well, hang on a sec. Why is everyone so confident that house prices can always only ever go up? And it's a classic example of groupthink. And it's a classic example of an area of social silence. I, I, would, I would disagree that this was a one-time instance of just bad luck because I think what we saw in the housing bubble was virtually an exact repeat of what we saw with the internet stock bubble. I mean, we, the, the, the narrative, if you, if you pull back from it, is, is extremely similar in both cases. In, in, the, in the internet years, we saw an incredible decline in underwriting standards for uh, initial public offerings. You know, it used to be that before you took a company public, it had to exist for five years, it had to be profitable for, for three years, it had to be making money at the time of the IPO. That all went out the window. By the time 1997 rolled around, you had like you know some 18-year-old kid with a couple of ideas on a napkin, you know, and he they're taking him public the next day, and that would never have happened, you know, back in you know 1980, 1970, 1960. Uh, that all goes boom, and the next thing you know, they just moved that same casino over to housing, where it used to be when you had to buy a house, you had to put 20% down. You had to have a job. You had to have, uh, you know, identification, and, and <laughs> no, I mean, you're you're, la you're laughing, but uh, you know, the the the, the no doc loan was 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 a was a very common thing during this period. Like, uh, what was like a ninja a ninja loan? Was that no income, no job, uh, right? Yeah, uh, this was very common. You could get a loan with a, you know, basically being a cipher uh, back in 2004, 2005, you know. And that all blew up again. Again, it was a massive decline in underwriting standards and then a, and a whole bunch of professionals in Wall Street talking up a market that they knew secretly, you know, privately, was you know, not, not real. Uh, so I think this is something that's, you know, this, this kind of speculative bubbles um, uh, have happened over and over again. And again, it happened again with the commodities bubble in 2008. You know, Goldman Sachs is up there telling us that, you know, oil is going to go to $200 a barrel when, of course, it doesn't really cost you know that much. That price wasn't appropriate at all. So this this is this is uh, to me it's it's not it's not bad luck. It's a you know pa pattern of behavior. But it's it's interesting that you brought up the internet example because it is a very kind of interesting analogy to draw, kind of on two fronts. So the, the first front was, I, I you know, and my my fourth confessional was actually I was teaching at Stanford during the internet bubble, teaching derivatives actually, <laughs> and actually none of my students paid attention to me because. <laughs> At that time, derivatives just was not cool. And, and in fact, some of them came up to me and they used to tell me, you know, you're so smart, you're wasting your life. Why, why are you not like, you know, joining the internet sort of uh, uh, revolution, right? So kind of on the front of the, of the bubble, you know, people really believed, right? That, you know, like people really believed that housing prices could only go up. Like that's why lots of homeowners did refinancing, you know, bought the stuff. People really believed in internet companies. That's why a whole generation of young kids uh, uh, went into sort of the internet. Now, so I would draw then kind of the two distinctions is that on the first part, on the internet thing, I'm not sure that the internet bubble was it all that bad, right? Because uh, we got a lot of guys kind of extremely motivated to do technology. Um, you know, I got a lot of free uh, internet access and, and a lot of free stuff that's kind of lower the, the cost of stuff. I can get records now for $4.99 instead of paying $11.99 because the internet has pretty much dropped the prices of everything. So uh, was that sort of a bad thing? But we also lost $5 trillion in the NASDAQ in one, in one year. And that was a lot of that money was basically the accumulated savings of 
of some uh, people. Baby boomers and post-war America. I mean, that, that was where that money came from. And, so, and they took so much of it that but the next time we had a bubble, people had to borrow money to invest in it. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I, uh, obviously the internet bubble had some ancillary positive effects, but, the, but you know, if, you, if you look at just what happened, it was a small slice of people made a ton of money and everybody else lost a lot of money, it, it looks like. I mean, clearly, you know, now we have Google, the internet's changed the world and that's great, but, but uh, you know, from just looking at purely what happened in those, in those years with, with those companies and, and, you know, who lost money, I think, you know, I think it's pretty clear what, what took so place. I, so I, I agree with that, that, you know, kind of on the oligarch kind of analogy, it's true that the investment banks just went through the internet bubble without, like, a blip. Right. right. You know, Goldman's profits were, were the same in 2002. It's like without a blip. It was right. just sort of amazing. But then what happened this time? I mean, you know, if they're so all-powerful and they're like so rigged, how come they end up having to testify uh, in front of uh, Congress this time? Well, what was the difference between this time and last time? How come they kind of evaded all the other stuff? And this time, you know, it's not so clear to me they're going to get away with stuff. They're, they're kind of pushing stuff dangerously close to, to sort of the edge. Money ran out. It seems to me. I mean, they, 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 the response to the end of the, the internet bubble. You know, Alan Greenspan slashes rates however many times in a row, eleven times. They basically flood Wall Street with money all over again. Uh, they give them a new a new charge card to start the whole game up. You know, all over again, and they, a new bubble starts in, in housing. Uh, that blows up. Well, now there's there's no money left. There's 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 no more. There's no way to restart this whole game all over again. And I think that's. I think couldn't they have sold off all the stuff to the, the other guys? How come like Lehman and these guys and Goldman and all these guys were, you kind of read the internal statements, you know, they were completely panicking like through various phases of this as if almost that they had no control over sort of what was happening in the market. It seemed like, you know, if you read kind of the testimony and all that stuff. Well, clearly part of, part of what, you know, what went on is that these, these companies themselves got caught up in the euphoria. Um, you know, and there's, again, there's an individual greed factor that you have to consider. You know, there, there, are, there are individuals within the, these companies that stood ma to gain massive amounts of money by, by you know, plunging their, their companies uh, neck deep into long investments on, you know, in, the, in these instruments. Um, and so, you know, there, there wasn't always a coordinated effort by these, these banks to get into the, to these markets. I think, uh, you know, maybe they, they just suffered the same, uh, you know, uh, psychological pitfalls that everybody else did during that period this time around. I think Matt makes a very good point there because, in a sense, America has been papering over the cracks, cracks or the Western world has been papering over the cracks for years. And many of the economic problems have been papered many of the economic problems have been papered over by an explosion in private credit in recent years and middle-class families who weren't seeing their actual real incomes grow kept feeling richer because they could borrow more and more and then as the explosion in private credit came to a sticky end in a sense the government has papered over the cracks by using public money for the last couple of years and yet that's not sustainable in the long term either and I think one of the things that's fueling all this anger right now and one of the reasons why possibly there may be now a real change in the way the game is played in Wall Street, the way that companies like Goldman Sachs do their business, is because people are sensing the fact that you can't keep papering over the cracks indefinitely. At some point, the bill's going to have to be paid. And the big question going forward for America, for much of the Western world, is who is going to pay that bill? How is that bill going to be allocated? Who's going to end up taking the pain? <coughs> Can a country like America actually pass out the pain without everyone wanting to kill each other 
or without ever wanting to point their finger at greedy bankers in search of scapegoats. And that's a kind of underlying subtext of what's going on right now, what's going on, what went on yesterday, and what's going on in so much of the debate going forward. And that's actually a really interesting point because, you know, even though, even as people like me uh, have been lambasting the banks for, you know, getting into these exotic financial innovations, the, the reality is that those innovations probably staved off disaster for a long time because, uh, you know, the, the underlying reality of America's economic situation is that our industrial economy is basically uh, collapsed. Uh, it's been exported to other countries, and we don't really have an economic engine in this country that's capable of sustaining the lifestyles that we have now. And, and all this innovation on Wall Street helped us paper over that problem for a long time, but now we're staring at it face to face and, and we have to actually either come up with a solution or, or face the reality. All right, great. I thought I'd like to use one other thing, a very a rather um, irreverent metaphor for what Wall Street's been doing in recent years, which is basically creating candy floss money. And that just like if you create candy floss, you take a small piece of sugar and you spin it round and round and round and round until you get a great big puff of pink, nice, sticky candy floss. So too, what the bank has been doing is taking these assets and spinning them round and round and round in circles, faster and faster in ways that most people don't understand, until you get this great big puff of leverage, or great big puff of activity that looks very nice and comforting. But actually, at the end of the day, you've still only got those same amount of fundamental underlying assets <coughs> there. And sooner or later, that nice big puff of candy floss money starts to collapse back in on itself. And that's kind of what's happening right now. All right, well, that's great. So I've gotten the signal from our master ceremony. We're going to open it up, uh, the questions to the floor. So uh, please raise your hands, and we're going to give you a microphone. There are microphones, and if perhaps if you raise your hand, and let's try to get the microphones to people because we're recording this. So. I have a simple question. The derivatives do not create any value. They are real instrument of gambling. So why we are allowing as a country for these guys to gamble on our money? Why don't we just ban those things? It's actually, it's, very, it's a very interesting question. The Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, uh, which affirmatively uh, banned regulation of derivatives, there's a specific uh, section of that bill that prevents state gaming authorities uh, from regulating derivatives because, of course, the reality is if you just look at it, uh, derivatives really are just gambling. Uh, it's, you know, it's two people betting on an outcome. Uh, so they had to actually go out of their way to prevent uh, us from regulating this stuff as gambling. But, but, there, is, but there is a hedging. But I mean, there is potentially a hedging motive. Sure, yeah. yeah. There, there's, there are legitimate uses of it, there right? Are legitimate you know, so for instance, the reason I think Warren Buffett is so there's a number of reasons, but in fact, if you read kind of the who's against, actually a lot of just the, the normal companies who uh, use derivatives to hedge oil prices, to hedge uh, airlines, you, it's very extremely difficult to run an airline without using potentially some of these instruments. I mean, you know, the styles vary, but there's some evidence out there. You're looking at the guys, the guys who are against kind of uh, uh, all of these uh, derivatives regulations don't seem to be the guys that were at the center of the problem. They seem to be more kind of Main Street. Uh, uh, normal companies that apparently find some use for. Yeah, you may not need. I agree. You don't need as sophisticated as the stuff that's you see. Uh, so I'm interested in uh, Julian Tett's statement about sort of sociology and controlling the cognitive map and power structures, and how that sort of her uh, training as a sociologist relates to 
her um, the, the study of the uh, financial markets. I was just wondering if you or, or Matt, Matt could uh, kind of comment about that. Sorry, I didn't quite catch the question again. Oh, oh, I, so I, I'm interested in sort of your statement about sort of the cognitive, uh, uh, controlling the cognitive maps or sort of uh, sociology and sort of how the, uh, and power structures and how all those things uh, tied into the financial system. And I was just wondering if you could comment about sort of how your uh, experience in sociology sort of, uh, some parallels you found between sociology and finance. Um, Anthropology, social anthropology, um, I think, is a very valuable prism for looking at many things. Partly because you're trained to try and take a holistic view of life and look at how different things add up, which seems incredibly obvious, but actually is quite rare in the modern society, modern world, because we are increasingly being trained to think, look at things and to think about things in quite a fragmented, compartmentalized, siloized way. We tend to have tunnel vision in many areas of life. So anthropology is quite useful for looking at how finance and politics and economics joins up. But also one of the great um, benefits of anthropology is that you tend to start with the assumption that most societies have an elite and the elite usually wants to stay in power. That's kind of like the human condition. Don't make a moral judgment. It's kind of like how it is, grow up, deal with it. Doesn't mean it can't change, but that's how it is. And the way the elite stays in power tends to be not merely by controlling the means of production, by controlling dominant discourse, the way we think. Again, it's not necessarily fundamental evil, it tends to be the way it is in most societies. And in most cases, the discourse, the fundamental ideology, the story that a society tells about itself and reproduces over generations is often riddled with all kinds of contradictions and hypocrisies, even if people like to think that it's totally rational and it all makes sense. And that's true in almost any context, and it's certainly true of the way that a lot of the Wall Street and financial industry operates. And, you know, crashing into the world of CBOs back in 2004 and 2005, which is what I did um, as a journalist, um, was fascinating because there was a world of financiers, a world of bankers who were operating with a very clearly defined sense of ideology, a very clearly defined story that they told themselves about what they were doing. Um, on one level, they believed it, on another level, perhaps some of them didn't, but it seemed to be coherent and internally consistent as they told the story, and yet, as so often, in many, many cases, it was also riddled with contradictions, which later turned out to be very clear. We now see it very clearly. Um, people weren't seeing it at the time. You know, it is a constant battle to try and expose the contradictions of whatever ideology and um, cognitive map an elite uses. And, you know, I happen to believe that one of, you know, the roles of the media, um, a very important role, is to try and do that and to try and pierce social silences, not merely because it can help sell newspapers, and that's what we're, you know, doing, but also because it's actually a very important social and public good about trying to shed light on dark places, trying to join up the dots, and trying to explain to people how the world around us works. Hello. Thank you for being here tonight, by the way. I was wondering if you could make a comment or two about the role that former Senator Phil Graham and his wife, Wendy, played in all of this. Uh, well, again, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act uh, of 2000, that was, uh, Phil Graham was involved in the two uh, key legislative moments in the history of this bubble era, the first being 
the, obviously the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act uh, back in the late 90s, which effectively repealed the Glass-Steagall Act, um, which was a Roosevelt-era law that prevented insurance companies, uh, commercial banks, and investment banks from merging. Uh, Phil Graham, uh, along in cooperation with uh, you know, Bob Rubin, uh, Larry Summers, you know, Clinton's whole economic team, but he was the driving legislative force behind that bill. And then uh, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, which again, if sort of affirmatively deregulated uh, derivatives uh, was Phil Graham's uh, baby. And inter the interesting thing about that is they did that bill uh, on Christmas Eve, if I'm not mistaken, uh, of 2000. Uh, this was while Clinton was a lame duck president. Nobody was paying attention. If I'm also not mistaken, this bill was never actually debated in a Senate committee, which is a, a, extremely unusual. Uh, and yet it was, it was voted on anyway. And so Graham kind of, you know, he, he was carrying the mail for, for the financial services industry a lot during those, those, that period. And that was, again, a, cr a crucial, those two bills were really crucial to what happened. Oh, that's, that's right. She ran it? Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, knew, I knew she worked for Enron uh, at that time because, right, right, okay, yeah. And remember the, the, uh, the so-called Enron exemption uh, there was a, a derivatives exemption in that, in that act uh, that was created specifically for Enron, and she was actually at Enron at that time, if I remember correctly. So, well done, Phil Graham. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to perhaps follow up on the Graham-Leach-Bliley question. Uh, first, to make a point in my capacity as a neuroscientist, to point out that when people have mood swing problems, such as bipolar syndrome, it is really hard for them to stick with their medication when they're in the up phases because it's so much fun. And in the case of Graham-Leach-Bliley, we're talking about a situation in which things are growing, everything's great, everyone's happy. And the time to really get in there and fix things is when things are down. Right. And I had a couple of, I, I was wanted to draw either of you, any of you out on the question of now that things seem to be down, well, first off, you mentioned that our industrial economy has uh, gone away on us. And so what are the specific ways now that perhaps there's a chance of getting someone's attention? What are the things that need to be done and how would one capture a policymaker's attention to get us off this bubble thinking? Where's the, what's next for the economy now that we don't make widgets? I think a um, challenging and testing of reflection and adjustment because, <laughs> you know, America's having to deal with two things at the same time at the moment. On the one hand, it's coping with the aftermath of that candy floss bubble collapsing back in on itself and what economists call deleveraging, i.e. cutting debt, is going to be a reality in the next few years and that is going to be very, very painful because, as I said before, much of the pain or much of the problems have been papered over so far by the increase in public sector debt. But that cannot continue indefinitely. So there's going to be a process of um, adjustment there. But the second area of adjustment, which also plays into this whole story, is the fact that an awful lot of economic power and activity is shifting away from America to Asia and elsewhere in emerging markets right now. And you know, if you look at the, some of the fundamental fiscal positions of so-called emerging markets, you have this fascinating situation right now where a lot of them look healthier in terms of the actual numbers than a country like America. Um, if you look at, say, you know, who's actually making stuff, where the growth is, where the activity is, again, there is a shift of power. Now, that 
that is a long-term shift. It hasn't come about just because of what's happened the last five, ten years. But there are these twin areas of adjustment right now which are confronting America, confronting Europe as well, and that is going to be tough to deal with. You know, we have a, a phrase in the UK, which I guess has also been banded around in America, of don't let a good crisis go to waste. And one of the things right now is that we are at a moment of an intellectual breakpoint, if you like. People are questioning, people are challenging some of the conventional wisdom. We do have a situation where, you know, what was the most powerful and widely admired bank in Wall Street just spent yesterday being grilled in, in Washington. That is a very unusual breakpoint that would have seemed almost inconceivable three years ago. So they were they were unresponsive. Yeah. I mean, but hey, it happened. Um, it wouldn't have happened three years ago. I mean, how many of you would have imagined three years ago that we would be where we are now? And out of that you know, adversity does come an opportunity to rethink a lot of the fundamental tenets. I would just add quickly, I think if we, if we go and we fix Wall Street and, and maybe institute some new rules so that it's harder to make enormous sums of money in these risky speculative activities and we kind of force Wall Street back into its more natural and appropriate role of finding good business ideas and investing in them, then in that case, I have great faith in both Wall Street and the ingenuity of the American people to find uh, a way out of this situation. I think what, we, what we've been held back by in recent years is that Wall Street has fallen in love with stealing money instead of making money. Uh, and if we, if we get them back to doing what they're supposed to do, there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, get back on our feet again. It doesn't make any sense why, why we shouldn't. Well, I, I, um, I travel quite a bit in China, and I think obviously that's the, the so-called where the next power is. You want to find a big bubble, just go to China. <laughs> <laughs> like, everybody's got a bubble. Right. You know, they've got a massive uh, construction bubble. Yes. Um, thank you. This has been very enlightening. Um, do you think that we've gotten back to the 11,000 point on the Dow too quickly? I mean, it seems to have, have jumped dramatically in the last couple months. Do you think it's happened too quickly? Do you expect another cra crash to happen? <sighs> you know, I, I'm maybe not entirely qualified to tell you the answer to that question. I know, I know, that, I know that the people that I talk to um, uh, uh, who work on Wall Street are all extremely dubious, and that they um, and their, their whole view of the entire "quote unquote" recovery is that this is an ancillary effect of massive amounts of government money being dumped onto the market, and that any any gains that we're seeing right now are temporary and illusory. Um, you know, I don't I don't have any real knowledge that would that would guide me. That I just, I'm just relying on what people tell me, uh, but I hear that often enough to make me think that it might be true. Markets are cheap if you just use traditional ratios, you know? I mean, who knows, right? But if you just kind of do the typical Bob Schiller thing, at least big stocks are cheap. That's about all you can say. This is more directed perhaps to Matt, but anyone can comment on this. Um, I feel after yesterday uh, that um, people who have been following this Debacle uh, felt very much as if something good is going to happen here, um, as far as regulation goes. Um, knowing the tentacles 
of uh, following the tentacles of, of uh, Goldman. Uh, I'm wondering if, and, and, and seeing that the public seems to be ahead of, uh, of the politicians on this, there's such anger in America about this, and Carl Levin is catching up, but uh, a real fall down in this has been the media. Um, and I'm wondering if, uh, if Matt, you have experienced any kind of muscling of, of what you've been trying to do. Uh, have you ever felt uh, in gathering these facts that you've, um, you've um, experienced uh, some kind of intimidation about really articulating this? You know, I, I get asked that question a lot. Again, I, I, li I lived in Russia for 10 years where, <laughs> where uh, one of my best friends was a reporter named Leonid Kurtakov who uh, wrote a story and the next day he had somebody leap through his bedroom window and hit him on the head with a crowbar. Uh, you know, in, there are a lot of parts of the world where, where journalists uh, experience real intimidation and they really have to worry about what they do for a living. I don't think America is really one of them. I think uh, we, you certainly have to worry about litigation in this country and Goldman Sachs is extremely intimidating in that respect. They, they, in fact, they went out of the, their way last fall um, to sue a tiny website called goldmansachs666.com. Uh, and this is basically some dude who's sitting in like a one-room studio in New York and writing a whole bunch of angry stuff about Goldman. And they, they set like four lawyers on this guy. And I, I, if he has money to buy a box of Mike and Ike's, I'll, I'll be surprised. Uh, and they, they do that as you know, a signal to everybody that if you get it wrong with us, you know, we're, we're, we're going to come get you. Um, but that's really the, that's the only fear that people uh, you know, should have of a company like that. I also think there, there is a, a, a bit of, Goldman is interesting in the sense that they project this aura of we're so smart uh, and we know everything that people were hesitant to criticize them because you think, well, if I'm criticizing Goldman, I have to be wrong. Uh, and I certainly had that because I don't know anything about, I mean, I didn't really know anything about finance when I started this process. And I'm pretty sure that other reporters have the same situation as well, where they're afraid to, to go against a company like that uh, just for that reason. Uh, nothing I'm about to say is meant to be facetious. Um, in watching yesterday, it might not be a great analogy, but in watching yesterday, I got a distinct crawling feeling again about Oliver North. <laughs> I wondered if you could tell us that you believe that there is a genuine opportunity here for reform or even, dare I mention, consequence, and we were not simply watching another piece of theater. What's your feeling about that? The honest, honest answer right now is I don't know. Because right now, we are in the middle of a huge, huge fight. And it's a bloody power struggle. And, you know, it's masked through, pay, one, you know, 1,300 pages incomprehensible um, reform legislation. It's masked through all these smart suits and these evasive questions and answers and all that kind of stuff. It's masked by this army of lobbyists and the fact that what's actually at the heart of this power struggle is incomprehensible, geeky stuff that people eyes glaze over when you talk about it. But there is a huge power struggle going on. And if you look back over the last 18 months, um, there have been many twists and turns of this power struggle between Wall Street and the rest of society. I mean, 
To me, it's a bit like the film Terminator 2, because after the great big crash in the autumn of 2008, there was a sense that the banking industry was flat on its back and had lost political clout. And I think, you know, I thought of the financial industry being a bit like that robot at the end of Terminator 2, you know, smashed into pieces all over the floor. So you kind of stopped watching it for a bit, and before you know what had happened, you know, the pieces had crawled back together and... <laughs> <laughs> and then you go fast forward to late in the autumn of 2009, and that robot's back going, well, hey, we've now got control of the reform agenda. But then, just when they thought they'd won, suddenly, bang, in come the politicians again. And then the story of this year has basically been, you know, Congress, Senate coming back and going, bang, get back in your box, we're going to smash off and cut off an arm or two, at least, the robot's on its knees, and then if you turn your back again, whoops, it's back again. <laughs> so I think the only honest thing is we just don't know, there is a huge fight going on, and we're probably still only in Act 3 of the buyback play. One thing to bear in mind, though, was that after the crash of 29, it took four years before you really had glass Google actually implemented. On that time scale, maybe we ain't going to see a conclusion, if there is a conclusion, another year or two. One thing I would add to that is that um, I, I recently did a story about Jefferson County, Alabama, uh, and that, would, that involved corruption in the municipal bond markets. And uh, thank you. And um, there was a one of the people I talked to was talking about you know the, 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 the basic instruments involved in that story were interest rate swaps, and basically the banks were using these sort of predatory versions of in interest rate swaps to, to fleece these communities out of money. Well, uh, before you had these interest rate swaps, there were they, the, the scam in the municipal bond markets was something called yield burning, uh, which is so complicated I don't even completely understand it. But I was talking to this one guy in the IRS who was saying, um, you know, when we, we nailed all these, uh, you know, Wall Street for yield burning, they had the so-called global settlement where they brought in all the banks and they fined all of them for, for engaging in this activity. Uh, he said, when we, we nailed everybody for yield burning, we thought it would take them five years before they thought up the next scam. They were doing these interest rate swaps the next day after that. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind. And the regulators are always five years late with this stuff. Whatever they're into now, we're probably not going to hear about it until five, it's five years from now, or from now or 10 years from now when we've had the next disaster. So if, even if Goldman Sachs takes a hit and even if Goldman Sachs goes under, there's somebody else somewhere who's into something that we don't know about. I'm pretty confident of that. Right, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I, mean, I think the, the, the finance bill is probably going to pass, and you're going to get an energy bill this year, too. And the next big thing is going to basically be carbon trading. That's the next big market. That's the next big bubble. Huh? Yeah. First, a, 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 a better, uh, at least an approach toward transparency um, that I think, Ms. Tate, early on in your, your comment um, about the clearer, perspective, uh, clearer prospectuses and, and that sort of thing. Um, also, we've had one comment that, that, that talks about, well, the, the derivatives regulation or at least some introduction of transparency with respect to, to derivatives and, and these other instruments is going to be blocked because um, 
the, um, the, the congressional committees are all, uh, uh, you know, beholden to the financial community in Wall Street in particular. Um, so I guess my question is, where does that leave us? Uh, are we resigned to the fact that um, there's really nothing that can be done because Wall Street has Congress sewed up? Um, the, and, and I guess basically the rage that's uh, pretty much engulfed uh, the American people uh, is this going to be all for naught? Is that is that where we are at the end of this discussion? I'd like to hear some reaction to, to that. Well, I think I think that's a really good question. I think one of the problem we have is that the the model for how we elect politicians in this country is they rely uh, entirely on a small group of campaign contributors, basically to fund their elections, and then they once they get to Washington, they're beholden to those people uh, primarily. They will listen to the electorate. A little as much as they can without offending their their campaign contributors. That's basically the way Washington has done business for a long time, and, and it always has done business. The financial services industry has been at the forefront of that dynamic for a long time now. But now politicians in Washington are faced with a dilemma. Uh, it's political suicide to be aligned with Wall Street right now. Um, you know, even the you know the Tea Partiers are you know railing against Goldman Sachs and companies like that. So there's an opportunity here, and I think we saw some of that yesterday for politicians to say, hey, you know, there's political hay to be made here. I could probably get elected even without their money uh, if I just do the right thing. Um, you know, relying on politicians to do the right thing is probably not a smart bet. It's not a bet that <laughs> Goldman Sachs, I think, would make. Uh, but I, I, I think there's, until you break that paradigm, we're probably not going to see a whole lot of progress. But the opportunity for that to happen is definitely there right now. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm playing off of the, gentle, the gentleman's uh, question and your answers. Um, and excuse me, I'm not a, an economist. I never worked for Goldman Sachs. I'm a historian. <laughs> but for years, decades really, I've been very bothered by something you brought up, which is we don't make anything really. Right. And so then I decided, uh, for no good reason, I just couldn't think of any other reason, that we were making, we stayed rich because we have enough money to use that money to make investments and live off of the, the um, interest. And now, with this latest um, crash, apparently that's not true either. So my question is, <laughs> is, it, <laughs> is it over with? I mean, can we ever come back? Do you want to? I, I mean, that's, it's, it's a horrible, you know, question we all have to face right now. I, I think clearly, you know, as I said before, we were maintaining a, a lifestyle that was beyond our means for a long time. And, you know, as much as we've been hammering Wall Street, they were making that possible for us by continually borrowing against the future in order to subsidize the present. Uh, and now, you know, the future is here. And and uh, and you know we're broke basically. Um, so what do we do from here? I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, you're, I'm a journalist. I don't have any answers, you know. Uh, but you know, I, again, I have. I, I don't know what the solution is, but I think you're you're correctly diagnosing the situation. And you.
and the UK in some ways the bigger issue because the city of London was a proportionately bigger part of our economy. Um, let us hope that the inventiveness inevitability of America comes through again. Okay. America supposed to be founded on hope. Let's just hope that that hope is still there and the hope works. <laughs> with, with that, oh, you want to put your hopes on China? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, the hour is late. I, I will say that as a teacher here at this university, the one positive thing I get out of this is that maybe I'll see fewer of my smart students go into the financial. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for our guests.